Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days 118 through 123, Monday through Saturday, September 10th through the 15th, 2001, five smiley faces, i.e. bowel movements. School is very important to me. Ever since I was six, I have wanted to go to college and get straight A's. I'm close to that second goal. Adrian's journal entry dated December 17th, 2000. Last night, Adrian felt that same tightness in her chest again. She had difficulty breathing. Using our stethoscope, John heard congestion in her lungs and suggested a hot bath to loosen it up, but it didn't work. Even a two-hour nap after dinner didn't make Adrian feel any better. Her heart rate remained between 120 to 130 beats per minute. She said it burned every time she breathed in. I want it to be a side effect of the Zalota but listening to Adrian wheeze while she slept, I remembered the recent test results. Tumors too numerous to count in every segment of every lobe. The oxygen has no place to go. She doesn't have enough room left in her lungs. She doesn't have a lot of time left either. The Zalota has to work, but just in case I order an alternative medicine definitive guide to cancer on Amazon. I have to make Adrian better. Since Adrian receives her dose of epigen on Mondays, her second injection of interferon is delayed until the evening. She spends the day tackling her world history assignments. The class is studying ancient Greece. Adrian has to read several chapters, define the key terms, and answer the questions. Her teacher gave her permission to type her work because writing has become more time-consuming. Every assignment takes her twice as long to do as it used to, excluding the times she has to stop to see her nurse, to receive medication, to eat lunch, or to lie down due to fatigue. Adrian spends more than eight hours in school that first day. However, by six o'clock, I declare school over because I have to give Adrian her interferon shot. John, Adrian, and I wait in anticipation. An hour passes. No fever. A good sign. Another hour. Still no fever or chills. Almost three hours after I administer the injection, Adrian throws up like last time, only now she has something in her stomach. Blue Powerade. After the three ounces of her favorite drink leaves her body, Adrian vomits intermittently for more than two hours until nothing but bile comes up. The doctor on call at UCLA suggests giving eight milligrams of Zofran to settle Adrian's stomach. 
I give it, and she throws up one last time ten minutes later. After that, her body seems too worn out to react anymore. I give Adrian most of her evening medications, except for the most important one, Zalota. She takes one look at the giant pills and says, I can't, sissy. I just can't. I don't argue with her because skipping one dose won't make a difference, and I know she won't be able to keep them down. She has a hard enough time taking Zalota when she feels fine. By 3 a.m., Adrian falls asleep. Exhausted but determined to do schoolwork, Adrian studies the words in the vocabulary skills book I gave her. It focuses on learning the Latin roots, and I hope it will help her prep for the PSAT. I don't have any formal English assignments for her, but I don't want her to wait, so I make a school schedule that includes world history, English, Algebra 2 lessons on the computer, and French lessons with Anya. Physics is no longer Adrian's science class because the math is too advanced. Her counselor and I agree she will take computer science and Algebra 2 with the same teacher if the district approves it. While Adrian works on her assignment, I turn on the television. I have this strange desire to see the news, which I never watch because nothing good ever happens. I switch channels until I realize the same thing is on every channel. The Twin Towers in New York City are on fire. I read the ticker at the bottom of the screen. Terrorist attacks? In America? Then the network shows a replay of what appears to be an earlier event. A plane collided into the South Tower, causing a burst of flames, followed by an explosion. Oh no, the time listed on the frame is 9.02 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, but it's noon already in New York. This colossal event occurred three hours ago, and I knew nothing about it. Adrian, you need to see this. But sissy, I have so much work to do. Take a break. Now. Consider this a history lesson. Adrian sighs as she gets up from the kitchen table. As soon as she turns around and can see the TV, she gasps. What happened? I don't know, kiddo. Let's find out. We sit together and watch the events of the morning replay themselves. We discover another plane hit the Pentagon, although fewer casualties are expected there. A fourth plane, believed to be on its way to the White House, was diverted by the passengers who attacked the hijackers. The plane crashed somewhere in Pennsylvania. Adrian recalls her friend Sharon is staying with her father in a town near Philadelphia, and she insists I contact Sharon to make sure she is okay. Her concern makes me think about the people I know in Manhattan, one person in particular, and I wonder if he is alive. Just when we think it cannot get much worse, the news replays the South Tower collapse. Adrian and I watch with our mouths agape. How could this happen, sissy? She asks. I wonder if she remembers asking me that same question about the outcome of the O.J. Simpson trial and I feel inadequate that six years later my answer is the same. I don't know. I use the attacks on America to begin a dialogue with her about ancient Greece. I ask her what she's read so far and what she has learned. As I listen, Adrian speaks in detail about democracy and how the Greeks influenced our government. Her eyes are alert, and the more she talks, the faster her speech gets, like she used to before the drugs slowed her down. 
She defends an individual's right to freedom and analyzes what the terrorists hope to gain by attacking the United States. I finally stop our discussion because she has a lot of work to do. As I turn off the television, I make a mental note of all the people I need to contact. Beyond saying a silent apology to the victims and their families, I'm too busy fighting a war in my own home to comprehend what has happened. I wonder what the childhood experts would think if I told them I have many fond memories of Adrian and me watching TV together. Some of the best ones occurred when we lived in the small studio apartment where we met John and Adam. Every morning before school, Adrian would turn on the television to watch the cartoon Sailor Moon, excuse me, animated series, while she got ready for school. She would explain the plot as I raced around preparing for my own work day. Then she would accuse me of not listening to her. She would quiz me in the car to see if I was paying attention and pretend to pout when I got the answers wrong and act surprised when I got the answers right. Another time I cherish is when we watched the 1996 Academy Awards together. Things were going along as usual, various awards, long speeches, dance numbers, when Christopher Reeve appeared on stage in a wheelchair, one of his first public appearances since his devastating accident the year before that had caused quadriplegia. The camera scanned the standing, clapping, and crying audience. As Adrian and I listened to Reeve speak, I patted her thigh thinking how lucky we were. She grabbed my hand. Even at nine years old, she understood. In a few seconds, Superman's life had changed forever. I get it now, how fast life can change. Many people remember the moment in 1996 when the Magnificent Seven made history, becoming the first American gymnastics team to win a gold medal. Adrian and I were sitting on the edge of our bed, sweating in the summer heat, watching the events on TV as the Summer Olympics took place in Atlanta. I was Adrian's gymnastics teacher at her summer camp, so the Olympics held a special meaning for us. We were invested in those girls. They had to win. We analyzed every move and cringed at the slightest mistake. We shook our heads when Dominique Marciano fell down on both landings of her two vaults. Last in rotation, the American team had the advantage and the pressure of knowing what they had to score in order to be the Olympic champions. With Marciano's mistakes, the responsibility to pull off the perfect vault lay on the last contender, Carrie Strug. Adrian and I held our breath. Strug fell short after her first vault, scoring a disappointing 9.162. Adrian squealed, no! I watched as Strug limped back to do her second vault. She was obviously hurt, but shaking it off. Knowing too many dancers who had performed in pain, I had a feeling Strug could do it, win the gold for her team and for her country. Hold on, I said to Adrian, and watch this girl. She's about to get her 15 minutes of fame. Adrian and I held hands and leaned forward. I swear we didn't breathe during the six seconds it took for Strug to run, jump, leap, twist, turn, and land on one foot. Adrian and I screamed. 
we didn't have to wait for the score, 9.712, to know Strug's near-perfect vault had secured American gold. Adrian and I jumped up and down, danced around, sharing not only pride in our country, but also the joy in knowing dreams do come true. I took Adrian to see Strug perform while she was on tour with Disney's World on Ice. With her legs still wrapped, Strug executed a flawless balance beam routine. We were fortunate to see her since she retired from gymnastics not long after that tour. I read somewhere she teaches elementary school in the Bay Area. I bet the kids love her. Wary of giving Adrian her interferon shot tomorrow, I called Dr. Aquino and asked him what we can do about the vomiting. When I describe what has happened, he says Adrian's extreme reaction is not normal and it must be stopped. He prescribes two medications, Decadron and Kytril. Adrian will receive both one hour prior to the shot and Kytril again whenever she feels nauseous. He suggests not giving her interferon again until the prescription for the pre-meds is ready. I don't intend to. Making Adrian better, not sicker, is the goal. As promised, one of Dr. Aquino's colleagues contacts me about a clinical trial involving denditric cell therapy. After reading a folder full of information, I discover many reasons why this particular vaccine is not a good idea even if I don't understand the research behind the theory. After a previous phase one trial, six HCC patients showed no decrease in tumor size or AFP levels, no increase in their immune systems, but they suffered no side effects either. What a waste of time. Adrian cannot be on any other therapies if she were in this clinical trial. She just started Zolota and Interferon. It's too soon to quit. She would also have to be at the hospital all the time for constant monitoring, which I already know she will refuse to do. A final email from Kirsten, our resident expert in clinical research, solidifies my opinion. This type of technology has been around for decades and has proven to have little effect over the years. I would not consider Adrian for any phase one clinical trial. I turn down the offer, but reiterate my desire to find a clinical trial involving UFT. Facts to Burbank Unified School District, Hal Jackson, from Andrea J. Wilson, copied Rick Carlton, Adrian's counselor, date Wednesday, September 12th, 2001 at 1 p.m., subject 504 hearing. My sister, Emma Adrian Wilson, was diagnosed with liver cancer this past May. She is currently a sophomore at Burbank High. Due to the effects of chemotherapy, she is unable to attend school at this time. I was aware that the homeschool program provided by the district only pays for five hours of school per week. Considering the average student at Burbank High attends school 30 hours per week, I think five hours is insufficient, not to mention unfair, in meeting her educational needs. Adrian is an honor student with a 4.0 average. She is extremely self-motivated and is eager to go back to school even if it has to be at home. I have already arranged for a French tutor three hours per week since I was told the district would be unable to find anyone who can teach that subject. Her other subjects include Honors World History, English 10, Computer Science, and Algebra 2. I am asking for an immediate 504 hearing, 504 being a section of the Rehabilitation Act that covers educational programs. Schools must make reasonable, 
and five hours is not reasonable, accommodations to ensure full, meaningful access to educational programs for eligible handicapped persons. As a cancer patient, Adrian is protected under the Rehabilitation Act. I expect this hearing to occur as soon as possible. Adrian deserves the same education as her peers. She should not be punished for having cancer. Thank you. Sincerely, Andrea J. Wilson. The same day, I faxed the 504 hearing request to the school district. Adrian has a rough 24 hours. Though she eats breakfast, she doesn't feel well due to a chronic yeast infection, as well as her period starting the night before. She sleeps from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., wakes up to eat a light lunch, and takes her Zolota before doing her schoolwork. When I go out to run errands around 2.30 p.m., she calls me, something she never does, to tell me she doesn't feel good. I rush home to find her running a low-grade fever, feeling nauseated and complaining her stomach burns. I give her Tums for what I assume is heartburn and Zofran for the nausea along with ginger ale and toast. I skipped the interferon that evening because the pre-meds were not ready at the pharmacy. She wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning because her liver hurts for the first time in ages. I give her 4 milligrams of Dilaudid and she soon falls back asleep. I never question my decision to request a 504 hearing because even on a bad day, like today, Adrian works on school in between naps and meals, even in bed if she has to. School gives her a sense of purpose, a reason to get out of bed, and I will not let Burbank Unified, my former employer, take that away from her. Adrian's liver continues to hurt, or sting, as she likes to say. When we go to her appointment at the UCLA clinic on Friday, I mention the pain right away because I know it is a clinical sign she is not doing well. The lab results reflect the same thing. While Adrian's main blood counts are fine, the chem panel re reveals her cholesterol is 375 when it should be less than 170. Since her diet hasn't changed, she eats so little anyway. The only explanation is her liver's ability to metabolize fat has been compromised. For the first time, her liver is unable to perform some of its basic functions. One of her liver enzymes has increased from 135 to 164 in five days, but the other has decreased from 24 to 21, so they balance each other out. Her bilirubin, another indication of liver function, remains within the normal range. After conferring with Dr. Aquino, Dr. Finn increases Adrian's daily dosage of Provacol to 30 milligrams. The cholesterol-lowering drug that was originally prescribed as part of her cancer treatment now needs to do its original job, lower her cholesterol. At least we know she can tolerate Provacol. We pick up Decadron and Chytril at the pharmacy. For once, Adrian doesn't mind taking more pills if they will prevent her from vomiting. She surprises me at the clinic by expressing how sad she is. She usually keeps those feelings to herself. I'm depressed, sissy. Oh. I don't know how to respond, so I wait for her to continue. I miss school. I fall asleep all the time. I can't do anything without feeling tired. I can't walk down the street. I can't talk on the phone. I can't even finish a chapter in Lord of the Rings. I know, sweetie. She frowns. 
I mean, I don't know how it feels, but I see you and I think I would give anything to change it. Before I can come up with anything positive to say, Adrian interrupts me. I need help. Maybe medication. I gulp and nod. Even when she was suicidal, Adrian was never on antidepressants. I look into her eyes, her gorgeous olive eyes, and I can see how exhausted she is. I wonder if she has given up, but then she wouldn't ask for help if she had. I speak to Dr. Finn, who suggests a psychiatric referral for Adrian's depression. A common reaction, he reminds me as he touches my arm. I nod, but I can't stop my eyes from watering. Accept the things you cannot change. I can't make everything better for Adrian all the time, but I can try. When we arrive home, we find a letter in the mail from Burbank Unified. A formal 504 hearing is scheduled for September 24th at 3 p.m. I make a mental note of it and think nine days should be plenty of time to prepare for it. Though Adrian wants to continue school, she takes little interest in the actual proceedings that are necessary to make it happen. When I show her the notice, she yawns and says she's tired. After napping for about 90 minutes, she wakes up and I give her the pre-meds, which must be taken one hour prior to the interferon shot. While we wait for the Decadron and Kytril to work their protective magic, Adrian reads a stack of Get Well letters from a 6th grade class taught by one of our friends. She is still reading when I administer the shot, though she appears not to be paying attention. She says without glancing away from the cards, You better bring the bucket just in case, sissy. I know she's right, but I was hoping for more optimism. I leave the makeshift bucket, a recycled country crock plastic margarine bowl, next to her chair. I make dinner, clean the kitchen, and wait for John to come home. I do my best not to watch the clock. If she's going to vomit, it will start by 8 p.m., three hours after I gave the shot. Adrian coughs within 30 minutes, and I rush to grab the bowl, but she shakes her head. It is only a cough, so I give her OTC cough medicine. She eats a small dinner. It stays down. She watches television with John. Soon, the 8 o'clock hour passes. Then, the 9 o'clock and I exhale. My shoulders release themselves and drop a few inches. When Adrian says she is experiencing joint pain at 9.30, I feel relief because I know what to do. I give her four milligrams of Dilaudid before helping her into a bath. Right before bedtime, she needs another milligram of Kytril for acute nausea, but overall, the pre-meds worked wonders. Why didn't Dr. Aquino prescribe them after the first time she threw up last week? Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days. 
a story told and written by Andrea Wilson-Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.